Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Zuma JD interview number seven. Before we get into things, I'd like to thank Bonfeeder. Bonfeeder are sponsoring the interviews now and brought me a proper microphone, so the quality of the episodes is going to be a lot better from here on in. Bonfeeder is an exchange analytics platform offering a wealth of interesting data that will make you a better trader. Plus, they have a Serum Exchange user interface with charts and other great features you can't get anywhere else. At the moment, it is all available for free. So check out bonfida.com, B-O-N-F-I-D-A.com. Without further ado, let's get into it. We have a great guest today, Flood. How's it going? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm, I'm doing well. It's, it's a pretty interesting you know, time in the market right now, but um, doing well, surviving, busy, which is always nice, but, uh, but it's going pretty well. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Uh, same here. I'm actually taking a little bit of a break from trading at the moment, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of over the past week and a half when the market tanked, I'm just taking a bit of a break. I think things are going to pick up again pretty soon, or I think we might go sideways until the US election. Mm-hmm. But actually, before we get into some crypto talk, um, I'd be curious to know uh, what your thoughts are on the coronavirus. Oh, the coronavirus. Well, yeah, I mean, I think regarding the virus it you know we we've seen this kind of big you know explosion of people very worried and and you know people obviously you know what what do people care about the most you know the safety of themselves and and their family right and their Mm -hmm. friends um so this really hit hard on a lot of people who you know during a bit of a turbulent economic time where you know we kind of look close to topping we had this invisible virus you know this very hard to quantify hard to understand almost unprecedented you know event in in kind of modern history at least at least on this scale Mm. and um you know i think the reaction has been overblown a little bit i I think when you know we're really seeing more concrete data with the mortality rates and especially for younger people at least you know healthy people in general, uh, it's really impeding their life and it's impeding, you know, a lot of business and, and a lot of just kind of day to day activities and stuff. I mean, a lot of gyms and, you know, a lot of like public places are closed and, you know, it depends on your opinion of the virus. But I think, um, unfortunately at at this point in time in a lot of areas, especially in the U S where I've been for a while, um, you know, it, it's really been, if you're that scared of the virus at this point, I think it's it's probably best that you stay inside, unfortunately, um, mm. and life can try and return to normal. But, you know, my only issue is that a lot of people see, you know, being very pro-mass social distancing, which is all fine if you want to participate in that, as like the most virtuous thing a person can do mm. in society right now. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily true, but you know, again, everyone has their own opinion. Everyone has their own situation, but yeah, that's kind of my take as a healthy, younger, younger person. Yeah. 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 I, I can relate to that. Um, where I am in Australia, we have one of the strictest lockdowns in the world and I feel like we've definitely mm-hmm. gone too far in, in one direction. What I think is going to be interesting actually is as things do open up and we hopefully get a vaccine and this thing is, is history. Uh, how people look back on it and you know with the benefit of hindsight if we think we did overreact or yeah absolutely and and you know in terms of the responses it really varies from country to country Mm. Um, at least the few that you know I've resided in over the years it, it really has varied but I think 
in general, the biggest takeaway from this and the biggest kind of shift that we'll see is the state of travel. I mm. mean, you know, before, especially even as, as early as, you know, the beginning of, of this year, it was very easy to travel from country to country. You basically just needed a passport, plane ticket, and return flight, right? Yeah. <laughs> and reason for, uh, for your business, right? And now that's going to completely change. I mean, tourism is going to get slammed. Mm. Um, we're really going to see, you know, a potential uh, kind of hit with with just, you know, freedom of travel and everything like that. But yeah. and, and, you know, how that will affect, um, you know, commerce and how that will affect economy and stuff is still up for debate. But I think it'll have long standing effects for years to come potentially you know even even with the vaccine i think there's going to be yeah. tighter restrictions yeah well there's a lot of chatter about this idea that potentially you won't be able to travel unless you have proof that you have a vaccine which mm -hmm. is a very interesting idea yeah like i'm 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 not necessarily someone who's anti-vaccines or anything but that is kind of sad that you could have uh one like a freedom to move essentially taken away from you if you didn't have a vaccine another interesting thing on that actually is uh, one thing that people are a bit surprised to know um, about Australia down here is that we actually have a ban on leaving the country. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think we're the only country that has this, or at least definitely the only like first world country. You can't, um, yeah, you can't leave Australia unless you have an exemption, and it's very hard to get one of these exemptions. I recently tried to get one myself and and failed, mm -hmm. uh, even though I thought I qualified for one. So that. It's a very strange feeling, actually. I don't necessarily disagree with with it once again, but it is a very strange feeling to think that right now, you know, if I go to the airport, uh, essentially my own government will turn me around and tell me to go home. Mm -hmm. If you told people a year ago that this would be happening, they would have been quite shocked. But uh, let's let's get into uh, into crypto stuff. So, just for those who don't know anything about you, could you tell us how did you get into trading and and um, what brought you into crypto? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, you know, post-college, I, I had worked in finance for a little bit. So I was always interested in, in trading in general and, and economics and mostly risk-taking. I mean, I, I'd always had an interest in, you know, poker and, and you know, these kind of mm. activities where you, you feel like your results are not a result of nepotism or, you know, of... There, it's a very merit-based um, profession, right? And, and mm. it's not linear either. It, it's, you know, it has ups and downs and, and you've got to be okay with losing. But I think what attracted me the most to trading in general was kind of the potential for freedom to kind of escape the rat race. And, mm. you know, if you choose to join a smaller outfit, which I did at various times in my life, um, you feel like you're making a more direct impact rather than working at a, a slightly larger firm, which has an, its advantages, you know, and disadvantages. Um, but you, you can you can definitely realize your um, worth uh, quite a bit easier, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I, I got into Bitcoin, uh, you know, later half of 2013, I first started paying attention. Um, not really trading so much. I, I definitely had the mindset of a longer term kind of value investor, but I uh, kind of saw that what attracted me the most to Bitcoin was the permissionless exchange of currency, right? No one mm -hmm. could, you know, reverse a wire or, or tell me, you know, hey, you can't send money to this person. You can't transact with them. And 
you know, I, I thought that had a, a lot more value than what Bitcoin was trading at at the time, which was, you know, low, uh, medium, medium three digits, right? And then yeah. we've seen kind of Bitcoin and the explosion of derivatives, which kind of were and still are to a large extent, you know, my bread and butter and my most traded um, contract or, or asset in general. I mean, I've done a, I've done a considerable amount of volume on a, on BitMEX and, and other you know cryptocurrency exchanges and been really interested in the development and expansion mm. of that space. But yeah, I, I mean, I think like everybody, um, you know, crypto has really been a space where you enter, you believe you know a lot, you kind of think you get the whole gist, and then as you dive deeper into the ecosystem you see that it's expanding and there are so many different ways where you can generate value and you can provide value and that's either through you know trading and taking risks that's through building for you know coders especially with the expansion of the um, defi space I, I keep mispronouncing it defi <laughs> i said defi and then a lot of people got very upset at me um, and then Again, you know, speculators and also people who just want the literal, you know, control of their money, the people mm -hmm. who are exclusively interested in that. And I, I think uh, it brings a lot of like minded people together um, from kind of all different trades and professions. But the kind of ideology of Bitcoin and Ethereum to a, a large extent as well, um, I, I've been kind of a, exposed to i guess over these last few months um it was really kind of what what attracted me in the first place but yeah i mean for people that don't know you know the, the crypto market was extremely different 2016 and, and early 2017 yeah. where there were just a ton of you know opportunities and, and inefficiencies as, as people didn't really know how to trade mm. um derivatives or at least how to trade derivatives efficiently i, I remember you know the earliest youtube videos of you know, Arthur giving uh, talks at, at, I think it was colleges and stuff of him, you know, talking about market making and, and how you can be, you know, you yeah. can have these delta neutral strategies and trying to incentivize that. That was a very new thing at the time. Um, at least no one, I, I mean, very few people, you know, anticipated that it would grow to the scale mm. um, that it's at today, where pretty much every large exchange has their own type of derivatives or, or offers leverage on spot. And, you know, the ability to trade Bitcoin and speculate on Bitcoin using the price of Bitcoin was or using Bitcoin as collateral was was pretty revolutionary. Yeah, I I actually worked for BitMEX for a few years. Um, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Beginning in early 2017. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's funny what you mentioned before about the different opportunities people have back then. My theory on mm -hmm. this has always been that essentially the reason why I say it, it would be so profitable to do arbitrage, even manually on derivatives uh, a few years ago was that the, I guess, traditional finance players who really understand how to do this stuff efficiently and quickly um, right. didn't have a willingness to move into the space because of essentially the, the risk they saw. And what yep. that did was give individuals an opportunity to, it gave them time to learn these things and kind of train up before these professionals moved into the space. And obviously, it's so it's so much different now. That being said, there, there's still definitely ways for people to get an, an edge in a way that you would never be able to get in traditional finance. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I really wanted to touch on. I got a lot of flack for this in, in kind of late 2019, where I said, you know, the times of 
100xing your investment in, in a very short period of time mm. um, through trading derivatives is is gone. I mean, unless you're you know a really stellar scalper or right. or you just have you know a massive edge because of you know a myriad of reasons that is has largely been um, kind of captured by professional market participants from not exclusively legacy finance, but, you mm -hmm. know, people who have done well over the years and have expanded their operation. Right. I mean, um, and that's like that's like any ecosystem and, and any market. I, I think there were a lot of market participants in 2016, 2017 that were not sophisticated, that were largely just gambling, which, you know, is their every right to do. It's their money. But that created a lot more opportunity for, um, you know, anyone who understood basic, like you were saying, basic ARB. I mean, when futures are trading at double digit percentage <laughs> yeah. premiums, yeah. that's that's pretty free money. And that's a very plus EV hedge as well. Right. I mean, because it eventually settles at the index. So, you know, I, I think those opportunities are long gone and I don't think they'll really ever come back. And, and that's just the natural progression of any space is. It gets more and more efficient, and um, you know it gets tougher and tougher to beat because your competition gets much better, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's why a lot of people were really excited about kind of this new sector of, of DeFi uh, expanding because it does feel like um, the little guys have an edge yeah. again. Um, but you know, I, I would really counter that fact with uh, it, it's kind of backwards, especially the whole yield farming thing. I, I know I'm kind of going off topic a little bit. We're talking no, about derivatives, okay. but yeah, yeah. you know, I, I think this is a good parallel. Investing or or in in any kind of you know trade, you have a lot of advantages being a smaller market participant. You know, sub sub seven figures, even sub six figures, uh, you're able to, you know, get in and out of positions quickly, you're able to mm. trade more liquid products without, you know, worrying about um, the bid side suddenly disappearing. <laughs> if you if you purchase, right. Um, but, you know, with with this attraction to yield farming, where people feel like they are creating value, and, and they're actively doing something for clicking buttons, and, and they're really attracted by these super high yields. Um, which, you know, are, are kind of erroneously calculated because, you know, yields, as we know, and as we've seen, eventually go to zero as, mm. as the governance tokens trade close to zero. I don't think they're exclusive. It's, you know, I don't think they're worthless, but I think their value is uh, is pretty close to zero. Yeah. And then they're kind of hampered by gas and they don't even realize that you know, your edge in that market is is probably maybe, you know, informational asymmetry and then you know potentially your you know willingness to take risk compared mm. to larger firms that are also farming but whenever a large firm finds out about a pool that you're in they're going to dilute it and then yeah. you know you don't get that same advantage of discovering an altcoin or or discovering you know a stock and then a larger market participant coming in and pushing that stock price up because there isn't enough liquidity for them right um you kind of have the opposite effect where you're seeing the rich getting richer and uninformed market participants getting rel relentlessly hammered. I mean, they haven't seen a single tick of profit on Binance um, mm. with these governance coins, you know, listing. And and I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, it's it's their money. It's their right to speculate however they want. But yeah, uh, kind of people that, you know, are, are talking about how this is good for the little guy. And, and this is really, you know 
going to be a, a revolutionary, you know, mm. um, new market of finance. I, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily I, true. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the actual truth is that some little guys have made a lot of money on DeFi, but mm -hmm. it's been mostly luck and riding this big boom, um, rather than say back in the day, a few years ago, people were making a lot of money doing relatively like sophisticated trading or, or right. there, there was there, there was some kind of this this almost sounds a little bit elitist or something but there was mm -hmm. some kind of proper basis to the strategies and, and ways people were going about things even if yes people were using insane amounts of leverage that maybe they wouldn't use in the traditional space or something like this and crypto is right. is inherently more risky but there's a lot of people getting lucky on DeFi stuff and I, I really do agree with you about the yield farming um, phenomena. Like I, I've participated in this, in a few of these, you know, farmable coins um, just to, just to try it out. And, and it is fun, you know, it's, mm -hmm. and it does remind me of crypto a few years ago. It's very wild west. Um, we're right. still trying to figure out what the value of these things are, what they actually, how these things actually should work, what actually makes sense. But um, the reality is that, we're starting to figure out that, as you were saying before, these tokens actually aren't worth a lot of money. There's too much sell side pressure because you can just farm them. And any excuse for reasons for them to be bought up is, is always going to be weaker, in my opinion, than all that relentless sell pressure that comes right. from these big trading firms that come in and start farming big time. Just to, to stick with um, uh, DeFi stuff, I guess. Right. The hot topic of, uh, of crypto right now, everyone everyone even even you know people that i've talked to pay attention to crypto passively mm. they are all talking about ethereum right i right. mean that's really people are really interested in ethereum really interested in trustless permissionless kind of you know smart contracts and and the allure of you know the endless possibilities they have a very good marketing kind of um mm. whether they realize it or not way to appeal to people that aren't as informed maybe i mean i'm not mm. saying that i'm a you know solidity erc20 token <laughs> smart contract guru or expert i i consult and i'm lucky enough to surround myself with with intelligent people who do completely understand and, and can evaluate risk and and the actual you know processes of, of these smart contracts but I, a lot of people are interested in um you know kind of how these smart contracts can be used in the future and and what mm. they can be used for and and you know that the new developments any you know we can put real estate on the blockchain we can put insurance we can put mm. you know a, a lot of other different things that we see in, in the real world and and a lot of people's you know uh, kind of i guess opinions right now is that um you know computers are better than humans at decision making most of the time or or the majority of the time right mm. uh and while i think that's true to a large you know to, to a, a decent extent i think the um kind of marketing of oh this is you know completely decentralized is kind of a, a farce right i mean mm. there'll always be um an unequal distribution in anything right um because you know, market participants that have more money will be able to, you know, purchase more of the token and in most cases farm more of the token, right? Yeah. For free. And smaller market participants that, you know, want to 
participate in decentralized governance um, are really hampered by gas costs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the barrier to entry is, is really, really high. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of people are looking at these tokens and we really have no great way to value them. We have no, you know, really good way to say, okay, total value locked, the governance token should, you know, the, the market cap of the governance token should be one-tenth of that. Like, there's right. no well, formula. This, yeah. I I sold all my uni tokens, the ones that right. I, Same. you know, got, like, almost as soon as <laughs> I got them. Um, I, you know, I, sh I should have held on to them a bit longer, given what's happened now, but mm -hmm. uh, I still don't really regret because it was kind of free money. Um, yeah, of course. And... I had some people message me on Twitter saying, oh, are you going to, are you planning on rebuying your tokens lower? And I was like, no, no, I don't, don't plan on that at all. It's just like all the other ones. There's just more excitement around Uniswap because it is quite a compelling product. Um, right. It, it's, it's probably the most exciting thing to come to crypto in, in, in a couple of years, in my opinion. But yeah, it still has the same the same issues as any other project. Like, what's the purpose of buying this token unless you're really passionate about Uniswap governance? And then even if you are, like, you can still participate in governance just by watching the discussions and being like a community member. Um, if you're right. a small person and there's these huge firms or like huge trading groups or other individuals that have heaps of tokens, your mm -hmm. little holding isn't going to be really much. Yeah, so... It's, it's the same problem, but these people that were messaging me were saying, oh, but it has narrative. And I've noticed this is a thing that a lot of people keep bringing up in the DeFi space. A lot of the Telegram groups, I mean, people keep saying, oh yeah, I'm buying this token because it has real narrative. And I'm like, what? Like, when was when did people start saying this unironically? This is such a weird like way to, to view things. And what they, they're right. saying is, you know, there's this narrative around DeFi, there's excitement. So you just buy the token because the token's somewhat associated with the project. So as long as there's excitement mm -hmm. around the project, the token value should go up. Um, right. I think this is much too simplistic a, a way of looking at, at things. Yeah, and, and I think what you're seeing now, especially with valuations, are a little out of control, in my opinion, not only due to constraints and liquidity, because a lot of projects incentivize locking up tokens, mm. either to vote or for boosts, or for some sort of, as people say, like Ponzi-nomics, right? Mm -hmm. Because the less supply there is, um, the more they can kind of offset the constant sell pressure from farming, if that's possible on, on you know, a number of protocols. And you're paying a lot of times if you were to buy a governance token for you know, the future valuation or whatever, you're paying for future development. You're paying for the mm -hmm. value in the future and the prices that are kind of offered right now um, are kind of not real. And, and I mean that in not the literal sense. I mean, if I bought, you know, YFI right now, I'm looking at it, it would be, you know, $31,000. But again, you're paying for future development. You're paying for future cash flows. You're paying for future revenue and, and you know, how important your vote will be. But as we've seen, yields are, are kind of going to zero, right? I mean, and, and everything right now is pretty much incentive-based. Why would anyone provide 
unless they were extremely bullish on, on uni, right? But, but the, what we've seen, especially with TVL kind of rotating from project to project, mm -hmm. chasing the highest yields, they're pretty agnostic to the protocol and their profit maximalists, right? Yeah. They're, I think someone had a good term, I forget who it was, but liquidity locus, right? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the perfect term. They suck up and dilute the pool for mm -hmm. younger people, or, or not younger people, but for smaller people who yeah. may have an actual interest in you know, the project. And then, um, you know, they purely dump and they either take profit in Ethereum or Tether or, or WBTC or whatever they, mm -hmm. they choose to liquidate to. And, um, you know, a, a lot of this liquidity that's even provided for, you know, Uniswap and, and other uh, speculative projects is exclusively incentive based. You see once incentives dry up, liquidity drops from, you know, anywhere 90 to 99% for a lot of these tokens, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's either due to a more attractive yield popping up or for those, you know, that, um, you know, and protocol risk changing or even forks, right? Uh, because a lot of these are open source and again, decentralized, right? What is yeah. stopping someone from creating a new platform that's slightly better? That's a huge risk that you don't really have in traditional investing. Yeah. Someone can't just fork your company with the same exact product and then tweak it a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can sometimes, but there are, you know, laws and stuff against, against explicitly stealing, you know, people's, uh, people's IP. Right. Mm. But in this, you know, and I'm not, I, I don't think Swerve is the perfect example of this, but you know, what's stopping, you know, other platforms from kind of getting their TVL sucked out, uh, by a fork that is a little bit better. And, and again, this is, you know, the speculative bear case, right? I mean, we haven't seen any forks that really eat the uh, the competitor? We saw, um, you know, or the predecessor. We saw sushi. We saw yeah, Swerve. That was, that was close. You know, yeah, but again, it's the same thing. Where once incentives drop off, TVL just plummets, right? And, mm. and it just goes to show that you know maybe people really aren't in it for the tech. And when you're buying at these, you know, astronomical astronomical prices in my opinion because of the sell side liquidity being um, sucked into incentive based programs and uh, again um, you know the speculation on the future value of these protocols uh, you're really asking to to get killed and and that's what we've seen a lot of um, the token listings on Binance and other exchanges I mean people that have been buying haven't had you know a day of profit it, especially with curve and stuff um, you just see mm relentless dumping and that discourages a lot of people from buying future governance tokens right well all of these farmable coins <clears throat> uh the yield farming stuff i've what i was doing uh the, the ones i participated in i literally wake up if i heard mm -hmm. about a new th this is such a terrible thing to admit to but i i really did do <laughs> this and i'm lucky it worked in hindsight it was a lot riskier mm -hmm. than i was really acknowledging at the time but if i woke up i checked twitter if there was a new farmable token out there that i hadn't heard about before i went to sleep but i wouldn't read into it at all i just go to the <laughs> website buy some of the token start farming it straight away with the goal of exiting within a few hours or right absolutely by the end of the day i would never you know sleep on this stuff and i've gotten lucky each time essentially what i do is i just keep farming it and you know you'd watch the price go up as people buy the token in order to farm it and then uh to, you know to lock up uh, liquidity to get liquidity pool tokens to start farming so the token get, keeps getting pushed up and then as soon as it starts started to sell i'd get out 
like because you, you mm-hmm. could you could actually see you know um as people's there's so many steps you have to um obviously you have to claim your token then you have to go to uniswap um stop you know stop um providing liquidity and uh-huh. then you know sell your token so there's like a few steps to go through there and depending on how congested the network is that would take some time some, and you could just see right. the price dumping as everyone's rushing to complete these steps um to get out and i think the best analogy this isn't a new analogy to crypto but this idea of it mm-hmm. being like musical chairs people used to say that about altcoin action but this mm-hmm. is like compressing that whole life cycle to you know some of these tokens will lock up uh, you know a couple hundred million dollars worth of assets and then literally within one two or three days go back to zero it's yeah it's incredible um it's yeah you, you really see the entire life cycle of you know a lot of what we saw in 2014 mm-hmm. to 2017 and, and middle of 2018 as there were exit pumps mm-hmm. um and, and the whole ico craze you're really seeing you know that that entire thing happened like you said in, in a manner in a matter of weeks right or, mm. or a couple of days or yeah. sometimes hours if, if there's something wrong with uh with the protocol and stuff right but mm. um you know a lot of people kind of that i've talked about with defy or DeFi, excuse me have <laughs> said oh you don't get it you know you don't understand you this is new this is revolutionary and every time i've heard that about all coins especially in particular mm-hmm. um pretty much other than ethereum most uh falter short of of the expectations that that everyone's kind of set but what i looked at this space um and and kind of the value uh that i saw was well you know a lot of these rates that you can get with tether are a lot more attractive than the basis on bitmex where you're kind of getting on average like three bps a day mm-hmm. um you were getting you know uh some on some products with tether you know a couple a, a month and a half two months ago you were getting low single digits per day with with you know depositing tether and there's obviously different risk there um in, in terms of kind of uh smart contract problems or or protocol risk but as, as you saw you know a lot of um a lot of these protocols being just direct forks of each other with minor tweaks. Uh, I thought it was relatively safe to kind of stake Tether. And and that's just, you know, pretty plus EV. You're, you're price mm-hmm. neutral. And, you know, even if the governance token goes to zero and, and you're aware of that fact, it's not like you're actually buying the token. You are yeah. using your Tether to just print money out of thin air and and you know unfortunately people are are buying and Hmm. that's uh (laughs) that's that's another story but you know it's like any market i mean people are are searching for profit but yeah that's that's what i've been looking at and and that's what attracted me to this space was oh you know tether is is relatively safe i I have a good deal of trust in in bitfinex and tether in general Hmm. um and you know it's kind of a no-brainer to park Tether in a pool and then just dump the token for more Tether and compound right. your gains and go from there. So that's what you know. I've largely been doing. I, I've kept quiet on it mainly, but um, 
Because there's, again, no reason to share the pools you're in, right? Because mm-hmm. if, a, if a larger firm comes in, it, my pool gets diluted, right? My yield, yeah. my yield gets diluted. So it's, it, it's pretty interesting. But there are, I will say, like for the bull case, um, and again, I'm talking my book here, just full <laughs> disclosure, I think Ave or, or Ave, I don't know how to pronounce it. I probably should. But <laughs> I, I think that's obviously a very interesting um, and, and very useful protocol that does offer a considerable amount of leverage and again um, incentivizes not selling your tokens incentivizes holding Mm -hmm. reducing supply because you can make your capital more efficient by you know holding chain link holding ethereum holding lend and then borrowing against it instead of selling it for stable coins um, so that, that's pretty cool. And then obviously, uh, I've talked about NS, SNX um, a fair amount. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, how feasible it is will obviously depend on scaling with Ethereum. And you know, I, I'm not a wizard or, or super um, knowledgeable when it comes to that aspect. But from really smart people that I've talked to who really do understand, scaling tends to seem um, a little far-fetched at this current present time. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for building complex, you know, BitMEX on Ethereum, right, is, is essentially what it is. Decentralized BitMEX on Ethereum is mm. difficult to scale. And whenever you have very complex models and very complex protocols, they can be damaged not by market participants that do not have profit interest on your platform. For example, if there are other... Um, market participants that, you know, if there is a hack or if there is some sort of, um, you know, kind of weird mechanism that indirectly affects your protocol, that can break your protocol in unintended ways, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. a very classic example is if someone had, you know, like we saw with the KuCoin hack, right? Um, If someone hacked, uh, I don't know, a, a smart contract or something like that, drained it of funds, they can't, wash that they can't mix the ethereum and obviously the centralized stable coins so there is potential for them to try and extract profit from other protocols by you know trading in in not intended ways or or very kind of weird ways where they would lose money Mm -hmm. um if they were doing it with no um with no added you know factor right with without this this money that they needed to extract profit from so whenever you have complicated protocols uh i I think there is risk there that people aren't necessarily um thinking about yet right um Mm. and i think that's going to be interesting as these products um you know expand and obviously as leverage is introduced more and more into the space which obviously makes it grow you're going to see a lot more of these kind of weird circumstances where people are like oh my god why are you know why is this contract trading you know 15 percent below market price like what's what's the catch here and it's because of some other seemingly unrelated Mm. you know factor in the ecosystem right which can hurt a lot of market participants yeah interesting idea there just while we're kind of rattling off different DeFi projects i mean uh there Mm -hmm. was a community question uh, someone wanted to know what you think of Solana and Serum. Uh, so I've looked into it. I mean, I it's gonna it's a little embarrassing. I, I haven't done my due diligence. I, I am having someone look into it for me though, as I've been <laughs> a, a little bit preoccupied in, in real life and obviously handling you know my BitMEX book and then handling this mm. this stable DeFi stuff has been tough. But I think it's interesting, and I think again scalability is king. Um, and, and, you know, ease of transaction for smaller market 
participants is going to allow your your you know project to grow and, and grow more quickly and reduce the kind of liquidity locust effect right mm -hmm. so uh we'll have to see um i mean I, i'm i'm fairly neutral on decentralized exchanges in general but mm. uh i think you know there's value there and and if anything alameda and ftx have shown that they are willing to build products and they are willing to innovate a lot quicker than anyone else in the space yeah so um i obviously would be open to you know potentially parking capital in serum and, and mm. solana and and that um in that kind of uh, ecosystem but as of this time I i'm fairly neutral on it and and i think in general the majority of projects if not all of them are overvalued um just because of again the incentive-based structure kind of like we discussed that the the prices right now are, are a little bit out of control in my opinion and that's not yeah. to say that they can't 5x from here right and I, and I look totally wrong but when it comes time um, for large holders to liquidate and, and realize profit, the liquidity is kind of very thin on both sides, right? Mm. And and these governance tokens, um, you know, we really saw accelerated selling, you know, when Bitcoin sold off and Ethereum sold off, we, we saw a lot of these DeFi projects, you know, have in value in, in a very short period of time. And luckily, you know, there were obviously market participants that are interested in buying clearly, but mm. if that ratio skews a little bit more towards selling and, and we really see uh, less and less interest in, in people, you know, bidding these projects, then mm. that can snowball pretty, pretty. I, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole, um, this, this famous chart of the kind of dot-com bubble, um, mm -hmm how, you know, early 2000s, all these companies are getting money thrown at them, ridiculous valuations based on all this hope for the future. And then the whole thing collapsed, obviously. Some people made the mistake of writing off the internet itself or the, the web itself, which was a mistake. And then you had companies that survived. Um, as we were saying before about how there's this whole cycle that these projects go through, sometimes within a few days for the really kind of dodgy ones. And... I feel like the DeFi space itself will go through that whole bubble, um, that dot-com bubble type chart, maybe within a year. Um, so for example, I think we might get another uptick of excitement again, or maybe the, the mm -hmm. first one really was it. Um, and from here on, only the ones that actually offer some kind of utility survive. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything, you know, when, when I saw Sushi and, and I saw kind of the TVL, um, for that project, I, mm. it didn't make me, you know, totally bearish on everything, but you kind of look at the APYs offered and I really struggled to understand at first, as I was relatively new to the space, kind of like, where is this yield coming from? Like, mm. is this a market inefficiency? Is this, you know, people are very interested in this project. Like it was very hard <laughs> Don't for ask me questions. even as, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and that was kind of the answer I got and, and kind of a lot of the general attitude for this space is like, who cares, you know, I'm making money. Right. And as we see markets sell off and, and as we potentially see, again, like I said, bid side evaporating a little bit, you're, you're gonna really see how interested, you know, are people in these projects and also 
um, kind of where where the the hidden leverage is, right? I mean, money isn't really printed out of thin air. I, I mean, you know, mm. value is is a lot of times in a lot of markets created by people leveraging and allow allowing them to you know park more and more capital and, and more and more things. And as those prices potentially go up, they can you know further snowball, right? Uh, we've seen it over and over again in, in kind of boom and bust cycles, but. I think, especially for, for this kind of space, um, you really have to be careful about um, the entries that, that you're getting. And, and, and again, even, even with some of these you know, derivative products, there, there aren't great ways to hedge these mm. projects, right? If you do yeah. want to park a large amount of capital. And you know, even for when I wanted to get in, when I, when I wanted to buy Wi-Fi, I'm looking at the sell side and I'm like, wow, you know, if I buy seven figures worth of this project, mm -hmm. I'm gonna push it up 30, 40%. I think when it was trading at you know, 22,000 or something. Yeah. It, it's very, very sketchy kind of in that yeah. way for, um, for trying to enter and exit. It, it's kind of, it's pretty interesting. All right, so moving away from DeFi and going back uh, into some history again. Another community question was, uh, what are your best and worst trades ever? If you can tell us some interesting stories. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I've told a couple of these stories um, a couple times, so I'll, I'll try some new ones, but mm. uh, definitely my worst trade uh, in this year, obviously, was not being short enough for uh, the March drop. Mm. And um, again, I, I consider myself very fortunate for um, you know, being at my computer at that time and, and really being able to you know, have full focus and, and being able to sell a lot of my uh, long exposure, which I did have uh, you know, in the low 7,000s. I, I thought I looked at 7,200 on, I believe it was March. Yeah, I believe it was uh, March 12th. Yeah, the, the day of the drop. And I was talking with some friends and I, I kind of said, you know, I, I think if 7,000 goes, we're going to we're going to really we're going to really landslide pretty hard. It's my worst trade this year because I didn't listen to my kind of gut feeling. Sometimes in trading, you know, you can have the most sophisticated models and, and you know, you can have everything that uh, tells you what to do and, and have it all be automated. But it's really hard to factor in massive drops like that and, and drops due to kind of news and, and just other, you know, um, factors in general, a lot of probably asset managers and stuff selling, you know, Bitcoin as they needed cash for, um, for you know, other positions that, that were more important to them, mm. uh, which is kind of really the only reason you see this massive landslide and then obviously the deleveraging on BitMEX and, and other derivative platforms. But yeah, it, it was my worst trade because um, I didn't hedge enough. And even at 6,000, you did have opportunities to sell and it yeah. still looked extremely bearish especially when as we've seen you know experiment experience kind of bitmax traders have seen the lick the liquidation walls build up and and how dangerous that can be and and how out of control it can get for bitmax on on their risk management side and and i instead just was a little scared. I, I think like most people were, it, it's really difficult to look at Bitcoin go from 8,000 to 6,000 in kind of a matter of hours and still understand that that's a good short and that you almost have no choice but to short and maybe puke above 7,000 or something just because you need to protect your capital. Lucky, yeah. Luckily enough, I had cash um, that I had set aside from selling kind of, uh, you know, earlier in the year at prices I thought were a, a little too high not to sell some. Mm. But, you know, we saw a lot of smart firms get deleted 
in, in the literal sense that that they don't exist anymore because that move was kind of so unprecedented. Mm. Um, so that was definitely my worst trade uh, this year, at least. <laughs> yeah. uh, not being short enough, um, and then probably not buying enough at the bottom as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I was about it, to say that that's yeah that's probably one of my biggest mistakes because um, mm. I had cash there, but honestly i remember when march happened i thought this is this is some old school crypto stuff where you know the yeah. prices halve in a day but then it, it was just kind of the shock uh, i think as well because of the um because it wasn't just crypto dumping it was also mm-hmm. the stock market was dumping this was yep. kind of at the height of fears about the the virus you know everyone's like you know it's, yeah exactly what, the lack of happen. information and the fear were were at an all-time yeah. high, right? Yeah. yeah, and it was funny because in the past, like years ago, th- these kinds of moves actually were a lot more regular. Like it wasn't uncommon for Bitcoin to do something crazy like this. And uh, a few years ago, I, I would you, you just you just instantly buy. You know, if, if Bitcoin right. crashes fifty percent in a day, you just buy that. There's no any anything you have, just put it in because th- those opportunities are so so rare. But this year right. when it happened it was yeah i guess it shouldn't have been a surprise that it's still possible that that could happen but i was i was proper numb yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and you know that's kind of one of those situations where you just have to think okay here if i had no bitcoin and i wasn't reeling from you know my net worth getting you know executed in real time you know kind of right. dro- dropping a, a couple percent every every minute would i look at this if i was fundamentally bullish and had no exposure mm. and think oh my god this is a gift i have to buy here and mm. and that that is kind of a useful skill to have and and that's why i think you should have a portfolio in general and i recommend this to you know everyone who says oh i want to trade crypto you should have a portfolio where you are pretty much exclusively trading spot maybe hedging a little bit with derivatives Mm. and your full focus is to buy bitcoin with cash at the best prices possible and then you you know you have an actively managed kind of um you know trading portfolio where you know you're investing in all coins and you're doing a a number of other things but you know looking at Bitcoin, like you said, having in a 24 hour period and not understanding that you kind of are forced to buy if you are long term bullish. Mm. And it's easy to say now that we're at 10,000, right? I mean, you know, if we were still at 3000, we'd probably be having a different conversation or or lower. But (laughs) again, a, a good question to kind of ask yourself whenever we see really big dips is, you know, a year from now, do I think Bitcoin will be more valuable than 3000? And every single time that, you know, we've kind of traded at 3000 or, or traded below 5,800 or close to it, um, often within a year, Bitcoin has traded multiples higher. So again, you know, exercise caution, only risk what you can afford to lose. But the nice thing about buying with spot and buying with cash is that your PL is not explicitly, you know, broadcasted every single time you log in to your exchange right mm. versus and it doesn't skew your perception and your emotions which everyone has um even robots like uh <laughs> even even robots like like sam and suzu who who just have you know the iron will and, and the yeah. steel and the fearlessness um everyone has emotions everyone can get euphoric and and you know the reciprocal of that but 
you just kind of have to look at that opportunity whenever we see massive sell-offs and say, you know what, I, I'm fine with buying here and I'm fine with walking away and I'm fine with not worrying about, um, you know, that mm -hmm. capital having or, or because I my, you know, thesis is that, you know, potentially in a year, it, it should be quite a bit higher, right? So it sounds like you're, you're thinking behind, you know, you, you try to do the fundamentals, I guess. But you also do a fair bit of TA. Another, another question I right. had here from the community was kind of what's your balance here? Of like, how do you weigh these things up? I'm guessing for, for me personally, I kind of think I, I don't really do a lot of TA, but I always find mm. TA is a lot more useful for like shorter term things or like kind of fine tuning. But you can't skip fundamentals. Like fundamentals no. is everything. If you want to have, especially if you want to be able to take a break, you know, if you just want right. to be able to go on holiday and not mm. freak out when you come back. Um, right having having a fundamental view is crucial in my opinion yeah i i agree i mean i i don't think the you know i think research is underfunded in this space and i think that's where we've seen a lot of firms really knock it out of the park this quarter and last quarter um was you know people getting into projects uh that they had really done their due diligence on and making multiple return i mean making you know astronomical mm. returns um, because they put in the time and put in the effort that you can't just get from looking at a chart, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I completely agree. I think, especially in this space where there are so many scams and so many risks that you can't see on a chart, uh, f you know, fundamental analysis will, will always give you an edge that, you know, looking at a chart and, and drawing really fancy lines and, you know, having it be black and white with levels perfectly mapped out, uh, un unfortunately won't give you. But yeah, in general, you know, my approach to to trading and to investing, uh, TA is a, is a factor in it. But again, you know, TA and, and any model or, or any sort of, you know, algo is just a tool to, to factor into your overall analysis and your overall kind of you know thesis of okay i think bitcoin is going to go up here i think it is oversold because of you know the delta over the last week i think um you know my oh, my indicators are saying that it's you know oversold uh price hasn't moved this much over the you know to the downside over a course of a week in in a very long time since like 2016 or something um and, you know, all of those factors should lead you to a conclusion that helps you have the confidence to risk your capital with mm -hmm. the, you know, um, expectation that you are going to be proven correct, right? So, you know, people who are exclusively TA or exclusively FA or, or, or anything, right, um, uh, unless you're doing ARB or some sort of delta neutral strategy, you really it's in your best interest to factor in a, a number of different fact, you know, a, a number of different arguments, I would say that way you're able to kind of formulate an opinion and, and, you know, formulate some sort of bias. And, and also, uh, you know, having a number of different things to look at can also snap you out of a bias. I mean, I, I was really, it's no secret that I was pretty bearish in the nine thousands range where we had that low chop. And, uh, you know, I was proven wrong, right? I was proven wrong when we broke up and, and you know, mm. went to 12,000. And having the ability to kind of 
stop out your position, close, so you don't, you know, liquidation doesn't become your stop loss. Yeah. Can either be due to TA, can be due to FA, or, or whatever you look at. But you, whenever you factor something into your decision-making process, it has to go both ways. But mm. in, in terms of TA, yeah, I, I think looking at levels, I think looking at, you know, um, zones or, or order blocks or whatever, or, or having some sort of trend-based following algo, um, well, can help you as long as that doesn't comprise a hundred percent of your, you know, trades. That isn't the exclusive reason why you are going long or going short, because mm. that um, that can be, you know, the the success rate of, of a number of different uh, decision making processes can go down over time, and and probably ultimately will go down over time. But um, yeah, you know, that I, I think it's in your best interest to explore a number of different options, and TA has value. Right. Just to um go back a bit again to derivatives because uh, that's mm-hmm. obviously one thing that people kind of look to you for commentary right. on, I think. What do you think at the moment in the derivative space, historically BitMEX absolutely dominated. Now it's a lot more competitive. You've got, and as we were saying before, you've got you know outfits like FTX, which just innovated mm-hmm. 100 kilometers an hour. What do you think the future of the derivative space looks like? Do you expect that BitMEX is going to like climb to call back some of that market share where do you think the future of the derivative space is going to go yeah i mean as much as i love bitmax bitmax has changed my life you know i'm eternally thankful to uh that platform and the uh, opportunities it's afforded me i think the kyc is the kiss of death i mean Mm. the whole attraction behind centralized exchanges that were safe was the capital efficiency that they provided you via leverage, the reduced counterparty risk via leverage, and the ability to sign up with an account and trade within 24 hours to either hedge your exposure or speculate on Bitcoin. And as soon as the KYC you know, thing was announced, um, and I think they've done a great job handling it, you know, pushing um, pushing it out and, and giving people time to kind of make a decision, hmm, do, you know, do I want to KYC it because I, I think BitMEX is a great platform or mm. or do I want to, uh, you know, kind of look at other alternatives? You kind of see with BitMEX, the outflows have been pretty steady. Uh, you know, their, their total AUM for, for coins on the exchange has, has really fallen. And I think that's not surprising mm. um, given just the unfortunate lack of innovation and, and kind of how their hands are tied uh, because they do have a lot of regulatory pressure. Uh, so in terms of where I think the, def- the derivative space will ultimately kind of lead is whatever platform can provide products that are liquid, that people want to trade Mm. Um, with safe custody uh, is, I mean, and it's like, well, no shit, but that is that yeah, is going yeah. to be the platform that ultimately wins out. Um, but again, you know, different platforms are attractive because of, you know, different mechanisms, right? I mean, mm. uh, BitMEX, its sole attractiveness really was the liquidity that it provided which was really important to you know market participants that are well, takers like me right yeah J- just quickly on that as well i think mm-hmm. an interesting bit of history is how the swap came about because right i think the first mover advantage on the swap really is what also gave bitmex an incredible um head start over the the other derivatives platforms there are now initially when bitmex started they only had futures 
at, at that time, um, there wasn't a lot of professional money in the space. So you were dealing with a lot of um, people who were just learning how to trade for the first time. And the thing about futures were, it's like, great, we get this leverage, which means, you know, if, if you know what's happening in the market, you can, you can multiply your profits very quickly. However, people didn't like the premium and discount of futures. They found that confusing, especially if they've mm. only traded spot or margin spot before. And they exactly. didn't like uh, expiry events, you know, so they log into their account and they're like, oh, where's my position gone? <laughs> and the swap was, you know, a, a kind of clever way to rectify these two issues because it gives you a product that is fairly well anchored to the spot price and it doesn't have an expiry date. So you kind of get the benefit of leverage, uh, cheap, cheap leverage in the sense that you don't have to pay uh, interest as you do on, the, on a margin uh, spot market. Right, And I think the fact that BitMEX got to that first and it seemed to take a long time for other people to be able to build, you know, products that were like the swap well and properly provide liquidity for them uh, to compete with the level of BitMEX took it took years, really. Yeah, it, it, right. And, and their transition from Quanto, right, which was their mm. kind of initial uh, yeah. go at the swaps and then people were like, okay, what the heck is a Quanto? And mm. then, you know, really the simplistic take that they had on it where you know people the only thing that people could really be confused on was the funding mechanism and making the lot size one dollar was right. really genius right as opposed to making it one bitcoin or, mm. or you know one whatever right mm. instead of making it five thousand ten thousand lots or something like that mm. um like some of the centralized exchanges are uh, really appealed to uh, the average person where they could, you know, kind of gamble or, or trade or, or, you know, hedge uh, very efficiently. And, and then obviously that, like you said, that attracted uh, sophisticated market participants and then kind of the rest is history. But yeah, I, I mean, in terms of the, like, like we were talking about the future, you know, a lot of these products take a long time for adoption. And what we've often seen is that the simpler the prod the product and the easier it is for not so sophisticated market participants to trade it and understand it and mm. potentially you know on the back of their hand be able to calculate their profit and loss if price goes up five percent or or the contract changes you know five percent um I, I think is going to ultimately win out and then obviously ease of access and right now i, I think probably binance will surge ahead uh, I don't know if they have any interest in doing options. I think we'll really see Deribit um, probably maintain their kind of uh, hold on options for now. But yeah. then, you know, I think you could see interesting stuff in terms of derivatives kind of pivoting to, you know, speculation on lending, right? And some sort of kind of structured product type uh, market where you do have, um, you know, being able to dumb that down a little bit for uh, market participants to kind of be like, okay, I, I press green button and I'm betting that price goes up. I, I press red button and I'm betting that price goes mm. down. And, you know, for, for other people who are lending or, or yield farming, potentially being able to borrow against LP tokens and stuff could be a pretty interesting mm. uh, derivative market that way, right? Uh, a couple of really intelligent people have kind of spoke about this first. It's not my idea. I'm, I'm not taking credit <laughs> for it, but that that can create a whole nother space. And then, you know, potentially VIX-like uh, contracts as now that we've seen, you know, options have 
more liquidity um, and, and, you know, designated market makers and everything like that, mm-hmm. um, we can see the expansion of, you know, their products on top of products, right? So that, that's where I'd imagine the derivative space goes. But I think that swaps for the next, you know, year or two years on BitMEX and Ethereum, or not, not BitMEX, Bitcoin and Ethereum will mm-hmm. be, um, or, you know, if some other altcoin surges up to the number two, three spot, will be the, uh, the most attractive, heavily traded and most liquid products because it's just so simple, right? And, and while I think the eight hour funding rate is a little archaic, Mm-hmm. Now that um, spot is or was at a certain period of time smaller than the than the BitMEX derivatives market, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, there's there's improvement on that, right? I, I think the incentivization of of keeping swaps tethered to the index price is still has room for improvement. I, I think the hourly rate is a good compromise what FTX is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the continuous funding rate is fantastic for Deribit, but uh, yeah, I, I think I, products on top of products will be, you know, kind of yeah. the most interesting thing. Yeah. Another community question, uh, just to change things up a bit, but keeping on the stuff that you're known to give good advice on, um, or not, okay. not necessarily advice, but commentary. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is uh, someone asked um, for your thoughts on risk management and position sizing, especially for, you know, going, say, if you, you're just getting into crypto or you're still... Mm-hmm working with a small amount of money, like lower six figs or even even less than that, and you're trying to build something right. up here. How do, how do you change your position sizing thinking and, and risk management thinking as you grow the amount of capital you have? Right, I mean, I think, you know, the obviously the most useful skill for crypto is, is position sizing because the risk is, you know, sometimes very apparent and, and people are just, willing to take it or sometimes it's hidden in in the sense of like sushi and and chef nomi right i mean that's Mm. you know something that you can't model right you can't factor in the dev uh kind of rug pulling a little bit um (laughs) into your risk analysis right i mean maybe you can't but uh who knows uh (laughs) uh, but yeah i think for position sizing there's no one shoe you know one size fits all um mechanism or or theory um but obviously you know, you, you really want to cap the leverage and think about your portfolio as a whole, even, you know, whether it's small or big, because that will, you know, give you the greatest chance of success um, and, and the greatest chance to scale is, is thinking about, you know, what is my delta uh, kind of, what are my options for hedging? How liquid are the products I'm trading? You know, what concerns do I have all factor into how you're going to size your position. Um, and, you know, again, when you're looking at, you know, trading swaps or, or, or trading, you know, all coins and the difference between the two, you have to think about the volatility, right? You have to think about kind of the sharp ratio of your portfolio. And, and, you know, you have to have some sort of metric, some sort of definitive way to say, how risky this investment is and then, you know, size proportionally, mm. right? And and a lot of people, you know, love to say like, oh, you know, diversification is is good and and you know, you should go gem hunting <laughs> if you have a small amount of capital and I disagree. Uh, I, I think you're, you know, while you do have chance for, you know, a lot of upside, you are sacrificing. Yeah. Again, I, like the I, ability to hedge one for one, right? So. Yeah, I, I think there's 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 very small historical like frames of time where that is a good idea. So, for example, 
years ago when when that whenever there was altcoin booms like taking a small amount of money and distributing it across a heap of random crap would actually mm-hmm. potentially work very well or right. early this year when DeFi stuff was just starting out potentially a good idea but if you really did the research and you actually found some proper gems you know not just mm-hmm. taking a punt on any website that said DeFi. exactly but generally speaking that is becoming a less and less good way to go about things and kind of what you were saying earlier often when people ask me now you know they want to get into crypto trading i always say uh what you were saying before which is just start off with trading spot buy bitcoin when you think it's cheap and just in small amounts and like start to get a feel for things understand all the different tools you have to to help you become a better trader and just yeah trade trade bitcoin because it's the most liquid thing this is most tools as you're saying before you can hedge you can do all these other things uh there's the most commentary available for it and then as you build up your like confidence and uh skill with using all mm. these different tools then you can branch out into things that are, are riskier uh, and you can and you can understand what makes something riskier right and, and you know when it comes to risk and and when it comes to kind of like you said building up gaining confidence and and trading and and then going into you know more sophisticated complex products which really aren't that sophisticated as people kind of realize and and find out but the the whole game of of crypto is at least for me and, and my kind of take philosophically i guess is that you know over the next decade there'll probably be considerable upside and all you have to do is protect Mm -hmm. your capital when price is going down and then don't blow up you know when price goes up right don't get stuck in some sort of bias don't get stuck in you know an inability to you know don't get greedy thinking you know you're going to get better and better prices because again if you're in the space and you you know have allocated some you know some percentage of your total capital as a whole to crypto you really should have a long-term bull case and and that's right. a good way to kind of skew and, and think about everything is you know i i like you said buy when price is cheap and cheap is relative you know, uh, people would say 10,000 is fairly cheap. Um, 10,000 flat right now is fairly cheap. And then, you know, in a month, maybe it'll look very expensive. But like you were saying, starting off with trading spot and, and risking, you know, really no more than single digit percentages if you're going to directionally trade, because we see a lot of people, uh, take, large amounts of leverage and and you know they may go on a heater and then you can even tell by the binance leaderboard they run it up uh you know a couple hundred percent and then in two days whenever the market has these huge sell-offs uh they have 90 percent or to 99 percent mm. account drawdowns right and that's because uh they don't understand that you have to give yourself an out right you have to give yourself um you know a point a point of invalidation a point where you're going to admit you're wrong and maybe you get stop ran but there's going to be times like march you know 12th 13th there's going to be times like you know september 2nd where the market just sells off double digit percentages and if you're levered anywhere you know above really you know 5x you're you're going to get killed and once you run out of money you know working up from five dollars back to ten thousand versus five thousand to ten thousand is, is a completely different story this is <laughs> so, such a yeah, yeah it's such a such an important point i've got one uh one last question funny question what percent of crypto twitter actually makes money in your opinion <laughs> oh man um actually makes money is 
kind of hard to quantify, I guess, right? Because they can make <laughs> right. money not mm. from trading, which uh, I, I think a, a fair amount of them either make money from selling products, selling uh, either advertising or, mm. you know, influencing, which is a market in and yeah. of itself. I mean, nothing wrong with it. I, I've been pretty critical in the past and I still am. I, I think, you know, it's you're probably not going to learn as much as you think from from someone's chart. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, but what percent of crypto Twitter makes money? It's hard to it's hard to say because the people that are very active on crypto Twitter uh, probably overstate the amount of money that they're making um, just because it's advantageous and a lot of times anonymous. Um, and, and a lot of the people who have been really, really successful, like Angelo Cobain, um, you mm. know, a lot of those older generation of traders uh, kind of disappear because they don't gain that much value from, you know, participating in, in discussion right. or, or contributing or anything. So and a lot of people who do make money and a lot of the sharpest, you know, firms and, and you know, individual traders really don't want the public um, attention. Right. Mm. Don't want the uh, scrutiny or, or the kind of um, analysis or spotlight on them because they're they have a very limited edge or, or they have a very niche kind of setup that that they don't want, you know, other market participants encroaching on. But, yeah, what, what percentage of crypto Twitter has actually made money from um, from crypto? I would say sub 50 uh, percent. I, I would even say sub 25 percent, actually. Mm. Uh, after it, when you factor in taxes and, and fees paid. Uh, a lot of people like um, the dopamine from Twitter, just like any social media. And, right. and a lot of people, you know, especially directional traders on BitMEX and, and other derivatives for Bitcoin and Ethereum, <laughs> trading has gotten exponentially harder. I mean, mm. I don't care who you are. Uh, trading Bitcoin and, and trading swaps has become a lot more difficult. The trends are... Um, a lot more spastic, the mm. wicks and, and the, you know, potential for uh, people who trade classically, manual traders um, are, are really getting killed. And you see that, especially leading up to the kind of March 12th wipeout. Uh, a lot of on-chain analytics have really shown that um, the majority of kind of customers that had net inflows into exchanges and, and not a lot of withdrawals um, mm. have kind of stopped. Right. And, and that and you know, I think a lot of uh, crypto Twitter was was really hurt by that day. And you see a lot of carcasses, maybe. Um, but, mm. you know, that's you. You're uh, I, and I'm surprised constantly by, by people, you know, proving how much they make and, and proving, you know, how much they're trading with. And I used to be a lot more, uh, <laughs> you know, general of, of, you know, prove your prove your position. Yeah. It's really easy to inspect element. And thankfully, BitMEX made that really easy. But yeah, I think a lot <laughs> of people on crypto Twitter are, are not the rainmakers that that they want you to believe they are. Mm. Um, and uh, their ultimate goal is is to either sell you a product and, and profit off you or to, um, you know, their, their goal is just their whole identity is based around um, crypto Twitter. And, and that's mm. the only time they've really felt you, cool or popular in their life. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> the, their life revolves around their yeah, Twitter identity. Exactly. Do, you think, do, you think that, um, do you think that having some kind of income outside of trading can make you a better trader? Yes. I think it'll afford you um, not only the kind of mental reinforcement that you are successful um, outside mm. of 
trading because trading can have some luck. Trading can have, you know, a lot of uh, downside at times where it feels like you are the worst trader in the world. You're, mm. you know, always getting stopped out. You're always yeah, selling you too early. You can't win every right? trade. Yeah, you can't win every. And that, again, reinforcement of trading not being your entire income really allows you to take a break when you feel like you're not trading your best or life gets in the way. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I can't um, recommend that enough, uh, whatever way uh, you know possible to explore other avenues of, of making money. And again, like a lot of different things, you don't really wanna be trading forever. At least I don't. I looked mm. at crypto trading in, you know, 2017 especially 2018 um and then 20 early half of 2019 where i was really doing well um and i, I kind of hit a, a target that i had for a long time um as you know a means to yes. create money right to to um kind of create value seemingly out of thin air for taking risk and mm -hmm. and not having that be a permanent um, kind of fixture of my life forever, right? Yeah. Uh, because it is extremely high stress in a 24 hour market. Right. Well, wait, we're kind of coming full circle here because I remember yeah. you said at the start of this interview that, you know, the reason you got into this space was to kind of the ability to potentially secure some kind of element of freedom. I, I identify with that very much as well. I think it's important to remember like why you're doing this. And um, once you hit those targets, remember to find other things that you're interested in and, and like reward yourself as well. Like use the capital to do things that you find interesting, whether it's, you know, potentially starting your own business or it just, just setting up a, a kind of lifestyle that you like uh, is super important and it'll motivate you to become a better trader. Money for its own sake is not, is not a very good way to, to live at all. Mm. Yeah. And if you base your entire identity around how much money you're making trading, the downswing will come eventually yeah. and that can really further put you into a, a negative mm. um, kind of mental state where it will impact your trading and then it'll compound and get worse and worse. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. And, and you see you see that happen, unfortunately, a lot with, you know, mm. some people on, on crypto Twitter who, who <laughs> feel like they're a god because they've been trading really well and, and knocking mm. it out of the park. And then <laughs> the inevitable downswing comes and uh, some don't recover. Right. So we used to call this the yeah. asterisk effect. <laughs> yes. the asterisk effect. I almost asterisked myself <laughs> this, this year uh, holding out for seven thousand one hundred. But yeah. And, and, you know, taking profit, right? Securing profit, setting capital aside for mm. these black swan events like March 12th. It, it won't be the last time that happens. Who yeah. knows if it'll be to that degree where it's, you know, 50%. It mm. may be 25%. It may mm. be 15%, you know, in a day, in a matter of hours. But having that kind of reserve capital to give you a very, like, nuanced take and a clear head and not watching your net worth completely evaporate and having some sort of safety net is really important. And then obviously, you know, diversification in the real world. I mean, crypto is great, mm. but crypto is so unpredictable. Um, who knows wh where we're going to be, you know, a year from now, much less five, 10 years from now. Yeah. So parking your money. I, I mean, I have an affinity for, for watches uh, because, you know, <laughs> they are kind of stores of value. So I, I've been getting into that a little bit more, which is nice. But yeah, I mean, anything, you know, property, uh, anything to give mm. you that reinforcement and that sense of comfort and the realization of your gains, the tangible um, way to really understand that this capital that I'm using 
um, has real world value and you know I, I do need to take profit. I, I do need to give myself a, a balanced take, a, a clear mentality when price is dipping because if I'm fully invested 24/7, I'm always going to be you know kind of skewed bull, right? Mm. I'm, I might I might miss the downside and that's when you can really wipe out and have catastrophic uh, catastrophic downswings. Awesome. Flood, thank you right. so much for coming on the Zoom and JD interviews. I hope you've had a good thank time. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really, this was definitely probably the, one of the most interesting podcasts I've done. I, I feel like we have a really good dynamic. Awesome. So yeah, I, re- I can't you know appreciate uh, you bringing me on enough. It's it's kind of hard to follow up the, the titans that you've kind of had on the <laughs> podcast before me. I'm maybe not as intelligent or, or as articulate as they are. Um, but I think that, you know, again, I, I'm one of the stories where you can be a little bit younger with maybe less pedigree and credentials and less experience and time mm. spent in traditional finance. I, I did have that background, but not to the quite, you know, decade experience that a lot of other people have. Mm. And you can find success. And that isn't completely erased, but it, it is harder and harder to find that uh, that edge that everyone's looking for. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Awesome stuff. Thanks, man. All right. Th- thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you.